So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we'll be in chapter 12 tonight. Revelation chapter 12. We'll look at the verse uh, first. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We'll look at the, probably the first uh, five verses. That's where we'll be. Um, yeah, the first five verses tonight. Um, Revelation chapter 12. Um, so chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 5. So um, not, a, not a very long passage of Scripture that we're going to deal with tonight. But it is one that is filled with uh, great uh, mystery, great wonder, great uh, a great number of things. And so Revelation chapter 12, beginning in uh, verse 1, going through the verse 5. So, if you are physically able to do so, let me invite you um, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 5. And this is the word of the Lord given to us tonight. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her under and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars in heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered. To devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word now. We ask that your blessings would be upon it. Give us wisdom, guidance, and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So this is, uh, for all intents and purposes, the Christmas story as you've never heard it told before. Um, you know, we think that oftentimes John didn't write anything about the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, I think most of the time John gets lumped in with Mark and, and, and really just says, well, just jumps forward into Jesus' ministry. But that's it's really not true. John, as a matter of fact, tells us, of two birth narratives in, uh, in his writings. The first is found back in the Gospel of John, back in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, it's just a, it's a very short little blurb, but it is there uh, for us to understand. And, and so John doesn't just, give, uh, doesn't just pass up Jesus' birth narrative, uh, the incarnation. But in chapter 1, verse 14, listen to what it says of John, the Gospel. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that is John's way of telling us that Jesus became flesh, that God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. And here, in Revelation chapter 12, we have a much more expanded yet very unique version of that very first birth narrative, that very first incarnation, the very first, if you will, Christmas uh, the, the very first time in which we come face to face with the reality that Christ, in fact, became, uh, that the second person of the Godhead became a human being. And I think there's a couple central characters that we're going to deal with here. 
Uh, the first is going to be the, the character of verse, in verses 1 and 2, and that is simply the character of the woman who's with child. And we're going to talk about her and, and who she represents and what exactly is going on with her. The second character that we're going to talk about is the character of the great red dragon or Satan himself in verses 3 and 4. And lastly, we will deal with the main character, the character of, of chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 5, the main character, and that is the man-child, Jesus Christ. Um, all three of these characters play uh, a significant role, but Jesus, in verse 5, plays the most central role of all the other characters. So, <clears throat> when we talk about Jesus and we talk about his birth narratives, uh, we often don't think of this one. We often think of, of probably Matthew and, and Luke's birth narratives, but this one really does roll back and pull back the curtain and the spiritual reality of exactly what was going on when Jesus clothed himself in flesh and he came to us, uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and ultimately became, became, uh, <clears throat> became our, or was our Savior, uh, who was uh, the one who would die on the cross for us. So let's deal with these, uh, with these three characters and see what we, can, what we can see here. Let's deal with the first one, because she's found here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen, listen to what it says again, just, just putting this before us, to get this before us again. And it says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon um, under her feet or at her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Uh, tr- honestly, this woman isn't identified. We're not told exactly who she is, but I think it's pretty clear who this woman is. Um, we're not given her name. Uh, we're not told um, uh, anything, uh, in much background about her other than the fact that she has uh, crowns and, tw- and uh, a crown of 12 stars and uh, she has uh, the, the moon uh, at her feet and uh, the sun and, and, and uh, she's clothed with the sun. Beyond that, though, we're not given a whole lot of detail about who she is. Uh, we are, uh, we are, we are, if we look back through scripture, I think we see who she is very plainly because there are two passages when this type of language is used in the Old Testament. The first is found in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. That's the first place where this imagery is found. Um, Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. If you remember anything about this passage, you'll remember that this is the passage where Joseph was dreaming his dreams. And this was the, this was the sort of the, the, the straw that, co- that broke the camel's back of this dream. Because listen to what Joseph says in chapter th- Genesis 37, beginning in verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me, or that's bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to you, to the earth? And his brothers envied him, but his father observed the saying, in other words, stored the saying up in his heart. So so for the first reality is is that we have Joseph, this Joseph uh, talking about the dream that he had with Rachel being his mother, right? And and the 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 sun and the moon and the stars and and uh, clearly we see the Rachel being the uh, the, uh, the the moon and the sun being his father and the the star the eleven stars bowing down to him being his brothers, um, and so this is the this is the first place where we find this imagery, but it's not the only place 
that we find this imagery. There is another place where we find this imagery. Uh, the other place that we find this imagery is found in Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 11. And this is, uh, this is a little bit of a different, um, a little bit of a different uh, passage uh, for a couple of different reasons. But in Isaiah 66, 7 through 11, listen to what it says. This is speaking of Zion or Jerusalem. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring, shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you, shall, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consequences of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. So in Isaiah 66, the idea here is that Jerusalem or Zion or Israel is the one who is giving, uh, who is giving birth. This, this birth imagery is, is again being used for her. And it's interesting that here in, in Revelation chapter 12, again, she is said to be with child. She is said to be at the point of giving birth, right? She's at the point of, of having to, to give birth. Um, and, and again, this is, this is clearly, uh, this is clearly a reference that the child, as we'll see in a few minutes, is clearly Jesus. It's clearly the, the one who will rule all nations, right? Uh, who will, who will, who will, um, who will one day, uh, rule and, and reign forever and ever. But there's, there's been a lot of speculation as to who this lady is, who this woman is. Let me just give you a couple. Uh, the first would say, well, she's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple different problems with that. I'm not going to go into all of them. Uh, just mainly there are far too many supernatural things said about this woman for this to be, actually be a human or earthly being. I think the same could be said with the fact that others would say, well, it's not Mary, but it's Eve, right? Um, Okay, but I still, there's still some things going on here that don't make sense um, if for it to be her. Uh, some would say, well, it's the, it's the church. But again, the, the problem with saying it's the church is that the church is not yet in full effect at this point. Uh, and so uh, the fact is, is that uh, she's going to give birth and then she's going to continue to give birth. And so, uh, um, so instead of the church giving birth to Christ, Christ actually gave birth to the church. So I think there's a, there's a problem with that. But what I think is clear, I think as you look at this text, who she is, I think is quite clear. She is, in fact, Israel. She is Jerusalem. She is Zion. She is the people of God. She is the elect of God. She is uh, those from whom Christ came. Um, she, is the, she is the one uh, who, who, who ends up uh, giving birth to Christ. And Paul speaks of this. Paul, Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 9. When he talks about that Jesus Christ himself came out of, of Israel, out of, out of Jerusalem, out of Zion. And Isaiah, as we read in Isaiah 66 here, he, he prophesied that Israel would be in birth pains until a man-child was brought forth. So I think ultimately the, the correct interpretation of this passage is that this woman is none other than Israel, the people of God, the, the nation of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is, this is the community of God, the people of God, the elect of God throughout all generations. 
These are the, these, this, is, this is who this ultimately is and re- referring to. There's a second character, though, and he's, he's a little more, uh, not, not that the woman isn't interesting, but he's a little more interesting here because in verses 2 and, uh, I'm sorry, in 3 and 4, what does it say here? It says, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a giant or a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and having seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is John, we have come through, we have come through all of the plagues. We have come through all of the issues. We've come through all of the bowls and the woes and all these things. Why in chapter 12 does John now stop and go back to the beginning. Why, why does he do this? What, what's the purpose for him to do this? Well, ultimately, he wants us to understand that everything within the book of Revelation is crouched in terms of the battle, uh, the battle, uh, uh, the great spiritual battle that's birthed out of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right, where the, the, the God, the God of heaven promises that, uh, to, uh, making a, pro- uh, making a promise to the woman and ultimately to the serpent in the garden, uh, there that he will, that he will cause the woman to birth ultimately a, 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 a Messiah, a, a promised man child who would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike the heel of this man child causing him injury. And all of this is crouched within that. All, the entire Bible is crouched within this narrative of the, the war between, between heaven and earth, the war between God's promises to man and Satan's th- seeking to thwart the promises of God. Now, to be sure, Satan can't do this. Uh, Satan can't thwart the purposes and the plans of God. But, my brothers and sisters, let me say this very clearly to you. Satan, as foolish as it may seem to us, is so deceived that he believes, he fully believes, knowing what God has told him, knowing what God has said, knowing that it is still going, knowing that, that, that he will never succeed, he firmly believes that he can beat God. He firmly believes that he can thwart God in his plans. And this second being, this great red dragon, is now, is, now, is now brought forth for us onto the scene for us to see really what he is all about. It's interesting because oftentimes when we think of Satan, we think of him as some little uh, red guy with pitchforks and horns and like a little pointy tail. And this is how we think of Satan, right? He's just really uh, nothing. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's a funny little character, right, of, of, uh, uh, of, of himself. And yet, throughout Scripture, Satan, while, while certainly not more powerful than God, is, in fact, a powerful spiritual being. And, and it's, I think, quite clear from Scripture. Scripture doesn't, doesn't, paint, uh, doesn't paint him as more than what he is, but it certainly doesn't paint him for less than what he is. And, and so when it describes Satan as a great red dragon... Right? It's not that Satan himself is necessarily a great red dragon, but that he is powerful and that he is a powerful spiritual being and that he is seeking to overthrow God, though he can't, though he won't, though he'll never be able to, and yet he constantly seeks 
to do this. He constantly seeks to thwart and overcome the plan of God. And it's interesting that, that God gives Satan this description, this description of authority, this description that, that's entirely different from what we often think of him, because he wants us to understand rightly what this being actually is. And it's interesting that as you go through Scripture, Satan is, is seen uh, in, in his original, right, we're not told exactly what, what, uh, when he fell, we're not told exactly, uh, you know, the date of his fall, or, or um, we're not told uh, certain things about his fall, but we are told enough to be able to put, piece together a couple things. So, f- for instance, in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, Satan was called uh, the most beautiful cherub, uh, a flaming one. Uh, but that he became proud in his own heart and he sinned and was cast out of the garden. We know that, um, we know that in doing so, we're, we're told that in this passage that he took a third of the, of the angels of heaven with him. Um, we're told in Isaiah, for instance, that, that he, was, he, was, uh, he was a beautiful, beautiful creation of God, filled with all sorts of splendor and beauty. Uh, was probably, perhaps, maybe, one of, if not the most beautiful beings of all of God's creations. And yet, in his, in his being, he chose to usurp God. He chose to usurp God's authority and his power and try to seek to, to overcome God. And this is, this is what the scriptures tell us here. L- listen to what he says here. And give notice to the numbers that are used here, okay? Satan has how many heads? Seven. Meaning what? The number of completeness and fullness. So Satan is, he, he is knowledgeable. He is intelligent. He is, he is not omniscient. That means he doesn't know everything, but he has a lot of knowledge. And he knows how to use it against us, how to tempt us, how to, how to pull us away, right? He does know that. Uh, he has seven heads in the sense that he is, he is complete in his, in, in, in his ability to be able to be a, a powerful being. He has seven crowns, in other words, symbolizing uh, his authority and his rule and his dominion. Uh, scripture clearly states that Satan is a crowned ruler with authority, um, well beyond anything that you and I can ever possibly imagine as, as human beings. Satan is also said to have had ten horns, which symbolize great power. So he not only has great authority and great dominion and great rule, but he also has great power. Uh, He's able to pierce and he's able to rip and he's able to tear and he's able to be ferocious and vicious. And this, this idea here in Revelation chapter 12 really symbolizes... That he uses, he uses everything that God has given him that, that was, that was given to him for good in very evil ways. So much so that in Adam and Eve's fall, um, Satan is now called, um, in, in certain ways, the God of this world. And he's able to blind the minds of men through sin. And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's what uh, uh, our brother read for us tonight. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. But he's also not only called the God of this world, he's also called uh, the prince of this world. In John 12.31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. 
John 14, 30, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of the world cometh and hath nothing in me. And again in John 16, 11, of judgment because of the prince of this world is judged. And it goes, it goes on and on. It could mention how he's called the prince of the power of the air and, and uh, a, a king with a kingdom, right? And, and things like that. Uh, but I'll leave that for you to, to study. Um, but needless to say, he is a powerful spiritual being. And there is, a, there is an origin story here that we're given just a little bit of information about. It's that when he fell, right? What happens? Well, he apparently draws a third, right? His tail uh, apparently draws a third part of heaven. Um, now, we are not sure, other than the fact that this happened, how this happened. The Bible does not tell us. This is not knowledge we need. So the Bible doesn't tell us. But apparently, in some, some way, Satan has, uh, or Lucifer at that time, um, drew a third part of the heavenly hosts with himself out of heaven. And as a result, then, pulls and drags these third of the stars out of heaven and was cast down, they and them together cast down out of heaven long ago. Um, it is interesting that, uh, that Satan is, has fallen, right? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou, didst, thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol or to hell, to the sides of the pit. To the abyss is what it is referencing. To the abyss. And Satan will be made nothing. But Satan's aim here in this passage is to devour the man-child. That is his point. His point is to devour the man-child. And this promise was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as I said. Now, my brothers and sisters, let me say this. There is one more character, and he is the central character to this all. And I want us to spend the most time talking about him, because he is the central character of this entire story. It says in verse 5, And she, that is the woman, brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So as I've said, who is this man-child? Well, this man-child is the man-child promised back in Genesis 3.15, and he is none other than Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And I think there needs to be two things pointed out at this point. The first is that Jesus Christ was born or sent into this world to rule the world. He is the rightful ruler. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he was sent by God to rule the nations, to show forth God's righteous judgment over the nations and God's right rule over the nations. And how did, how did Christ do this the first time? Well, the first time he did this was none other than through the cross. Christ poured forth the vindication that, that he rules the nations through the cross. That is, that the first time he came, he came as the, as the Lamb of God who was slain. And yet this Lamb was not just a Lamb, but also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is, in fact, the Lion Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who gave his, sin, he gave, who gave his life away 
for the sins of those who had repented and believed the gospel within the world, but also the, 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 the mighty, ferocious lion of God who will, the next time he returns, devour his enemies and not spare them who will not bow their knee to him. The only way for us to be free of sin's tyranny and the tyranny of the evil one, the devil, is for us to find freedom and hope in Christ and in Christ alone. It is Christ that offers us the hope of salvation. It is Christ the one who promises the gift of life. It is Christ and Christ alone who promises us the hope of salvation and the certainty of, of, of a, an eternity with God himself. Therefore, the only way you and I can ever be free in this life is to find our hope and salvation in Christ. Fleeing to Christ in hope, being rightly condemned and justly condemned by God because we were sinners. We are sinners apart from Christ. And God looking down upon us, rightly, us rightly deserving judgment and sin and condemnation. Instead, through Christ has had mercy upon many, many sinners. And so though, though Satan is seeking to devour, sought to devour this, this, this plan of God, this man-child of God, this God himself who came to earth as, as man, though Satan sought to do this, Satan himself could not overcome God and the plan and the purpose of God in Christ. And it's now to Christ to whom we must look. Christ to whom we must now flee, Christ to whom we must now look in faith and repenting of our sins, turn to Christ. We must now look to Christ, hope in Christ, find our comfort in Christ. Listen to what Hebrews says, for as much, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil. And also in Colossians 2.15 it says this, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. And what about 1 John 3.8? For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so though the nations may not see him now as ruling with the rod of iron, I guarantee you, that he is now, even now, ruling with a rod of iron. And his rule will one day be certainly put forward. And he will, he will, in reality, rule all nations in power and in authority. And in the power and the authority that he and he alone has the right to do. Jesus will use this rod of iron against the nations of this world, against the ungodly and against the evil in the times to come. And he will rule all nations and bring in righteousness and justice, godliness. And there will be nothing evil or bad or impure that will ever stand in his way. Ever. Matter of fact, in Psalm 2.9, this is the promise. This is the promise given that you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And we'll see this particularly as we get into Revelation chapter 19. Because in Revelation chapter 19, listen to what he says in verse 15. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And so what does this mean that Jesus Christ, I mean, it seems like such a short period of time between his, his being birthed and his 
and his ascension. And it really was. I mean, Jesus only lived on the earth for around 33 years. He, he wasn't with us long, and yet he, he, he accomplished the will and the plan of his Father and our Father, if we know Christ. And he ascended back to, the, to his Father and our Father, to his God and our God. And he ascended back to him. And he is there ruling at the right hand of the throne of God himself. And there is proof after proof after proof that he is going to rule and reign once and for all from from Zion, from Jerusalem. And he will bring in righteousness and justice into the earth that all rights will one day be made, all wrongs will one day be made right. All sins will be one day purified that all stains will be made white, that we will be able to live in the grace of God freely, uh, freely and abundantly experiencing his blessings. And that's what it says, that Jesus Christ was ascended, is ascended and is exalted. And again, that there's proof of this. You say, well, what type of proof? Well, I mean, we could go through, through scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture where this is the case. But let me just point to a few. 1 Peter 3.22, who, who is gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Romans 1.4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Luke 22.69, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And there is coming a day in which Christ will subjugate all nations. You say, well, where's that? Well, probably the most fitting of this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name. And what is that name? It's not Jesus, it's Lord. Above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So when we speak of Jesus Christ, we need to speak of him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, but he is also the sovereign king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And for us who live in uncertain days, and for us who live in trying days, and us who live in in, in it feels like sometimes we just want to say, stop the ride, I want to get off, uh, please. Um, in this day and time in which we live, we have confidence. Not that, not that, um, not that, we are able to, to plan or able to store up enough stuff, right? Although I, I, I don't know those are bad things, right? Plan, storing up stuff, having enough guns, ammunition. I think those are all fine things. Um, but, but in the end, none of those things are going to save us. None of those things are going to save us. Not a blast in one of those things. It is Jesus Christ who saves us. It is Christ who died for us. It's Christ who came for us. It is Christ who rules us. It is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who protects us. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. And we should look to their example of how they suffer for the name of Jesus, looking to the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, trusting in him, looking to him, seeking him, honoring him in all that they do and say. Let us remember that it is, in fact, the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church 
The church grows as we suffer. And no one wants to suffer. No one likes to think about suffering. Because as we'll see, Satan doesn't stop when he can't get to the man-child. He goes off and makes great war against the, women, the woman's other children. And he overcomes a great number of them. And he kills a great many of them. And let us look to Christ who has gone before us, has made the way before us. And let us, let us hope in Christ. And let us, look, let us look to Christ in all things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you that, it's, that he, is the, he is the hero of this story. Um, thank you that, that is, as wonderful as it is to hear about uh, the, the saints of God and how um, the saints of God are ultimately able to, uh, to overcome the evil one, God, all of this is only possible because of the great one, the great one. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our King, Jesus our God, Jesus the second person of the Trinity. And so now, God, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to remember that it's Christ that we now live for, it's Christ that we now walk for, we now breathe for, we now talk for, we now relate to one another for. And so God help us, we pray, looking forward to the day in which he will rule with a rod of iron over the nations once and for all. Until that day, we say with the Apostle John, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. <clears throat>